Lisa. You sound in similar fettle as you did 10 minutes ago, the first time we recorded this. You'd think that between the 10 minutes ago and now, I'd have learned what the word fettle means. You'd usually say you're in fine fettle, which is the opposite of our situation. Also kind of sounds a bit like metal, like you're made of strong stuff, you know. It's the beginning of a limerick, but let's not let's not go down that path. So, as you can tell, dear listener, this is uncertain things, and we are <laughs> in poor fettle here. We've had a month full of tribulations that have cost us our timely release of this episode. Yeah, I'd love to say it was because we were off gallivanting, doing fun summary things, but in fact, no, it was we were riding the emotional roller coaster of life. Uh, and that prevented us from doing our, our good work. But we're back and we have we have things in store. Our fall shall be feckened. Is that a right word? <laughs> yes, a cornucopia of content. We already have uh, recorded a conversation with Yasha Monk. So epic, apparently, that it had to be Solomonically divided in two, which we'll be releasing very shortly. But today we're actually releasing part one of what we consider kind of a two-parter special about big tech. So we're going to cover a lot of aspects in the ways big tech has influenced our lives from democracy and politics to psychology, human behavior, to how the world and culture of tech has become a dominant metaphor through which we view and understand the world. And the question we seem to keep coming back to is big tech, which means the technology, but also the companies and the cultures they represent, starting to creep into aspects of our lives that they don't necessarily should. And if that's the case, what should be done about this? And you'll find that whenever we get to the question of what should we do about it, (laughs) we find ourselves in severe disagreement. Uh, At least I find myself in severe disagreement with our guests, which is fun. But for the first episode, we have the authors of System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. Uh, It's three authors, all professors at Stanford, um, where they met, but they all have slightly different areas of expertise. So it's uh, Rob Reich, Mehran Sahami, and Jeremy Weinstein. Um, Rob, a professor of political science and philosophy, who's... Bailiwick is ethics, philanthropy, human-centered AI. He's written another book on uh, digital technology and democratic theory. Um, so that's his kind of area. Then Mehran Sahami was is the kind of resident tech practitioner, if you will. He's a software engineer. He was recruited to Google in the early days, recruited by Sergey Brin. His uh, specialty is machine learning and AI, and he teaches computer science to all the all the little newbie engineers who go to Stanford. So he gets a firsthand uh, seat for the the next generation of, of engineering. Um, he's also a partner, um, limited partner in some VC funds. And we do end up talking a bit about VC and its uh, impact on the tech sector, which was interesting. Um, and thirdly, but not lastly, uh, Jeremy Weinstein is a political scientist. He worked on the uh, with Obama, helping launch his open government partnership. Um, and now he's a professor at Stanford, uh, 
teaching political science and leading the Stanford Impact Lab. So really interesting to get all three of their perspectives. Um, and they they bring that all to bear in the book, System Errors, so that they can look at, in a more holistic way at the system, st- systemic drivers that are leading to the kind of negative outcomes and impacts that we're seeing today in, in tech and as a result in our society. You should all pause the podcast and just given us a moment of applause for going through this <laughs> spiel a second time in her current condition. <laughs> Phenomenal. Yeah. I, the rest of the day, all I've done is nap. So I was waiting for this moment. So thank you. One of my favorite points of the conversation was when we talked about the optimization mindset, this perception in the tech world that we keep tweaking things to a better and better, more optimal version of itself and how this is unduly affecting our approach to maybe politics and maybe other aspects of life, optimizing our diets, our lifestyles, our relationships. Yeah, it's something we talked about with Will uh, Duresowitz as well, which is also a really good conversation, somewhat tangential to this, but I think, but I think related and interesting. Totally. Anyway, things get fun and contentious in this five-way conversation. So we hope it makes sense and we hope you enjoy it. For now, we are Uncertain Things. We are on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to support us, five stars on Apple Podcasts go a long way. Uh, And if you really, really want to support us, you can give us some schmickles on the Substack. We release some members-only content slices from episodes and the additional bonus material that we produce on occasion. But really, it's about showing that you are enjoying what we're doing and want us to do more of it. Yeah, that's uncertain.substack.com. And you can subscribe on the free tier. But if you want to help some jaded journalists out, then subscribe on the paid tier. And with that, Rob Reich, Miron Sahami, and Jeremy Weinstein. I want to just start off because I think one of the things that was interesting about reading reading System Error and hearing you all talk about this is that you, kind of like us, are have been very frustrated with the narratives that you've seen around tech. Like it was all tech boosterism at one point, and then it was all tech clash. And from our perspective, it's been very frustrating watching these kind of binary narratives. Um, and I think you all kind of shared that viewpoint that the, it doesn't have to be such a, a simplistic paradigm of good, bad companies, good, bad actors. In fact, we should be looking at this at a much more systemic level. It's like system error, title of your book. Um, and so I do want to just start um, diagnosing the systemic drivers that you all outline in the book. The things within tech that are ha- causing the negative externalities that we are all experiencing and let's talk about them in a way that isn't so simplistic. So um, let's maybe start with these, this optimization mindset. And I think all three of you, having been professors at Stanford for a while, have probably seen the optimization mindset uh, infiltrating into the culture of, of Stanford and also Silicon Valley kind of more uh, broadly. So would you mind first just describing the optimization mindset and, and then we can get into how you've seen it start to, how you're, how you're seeing it manifest in the culture. All right. I'm going to hop in here right away because I feel like this has been in certain respects of, of, of you know, looming in the back of my head, not just for the time I've been uh, writing this book and, and teaching with Jeremy and Mehran, but for a long time here on campus. 
So talking about maximizing and optimizing and obsessing over efficiency and productivity for someone who's a philosopher like myself is, is always going to set off a, a set of warning, warning signals, uh, warning bells. Um, for the simple reason that optimizing and maximizing and efficiency is not in and of itself a good thing, um, because it all depends, whether it's good or, uh, uh, or not, on what you're optimizing for, what you're trying to make more efficient. So as I've been hanging out on this campus for a long time, and then getting to know people, first early as students, but then later as technologists, the kind of obsession with optimization, this special kind of superpower tool that they learn in a computer science department always struck me as a weird thing to feel proud about um, because, in my judgment, it depends on whether or not what you're optimizing is itself good. So just to give an illustration of that, in the book, we use the simple example of Soylent, the meal replacement powder. And if you take a charitable approach to the inventors of Soylent, who were, of course, engineers um, from Silicon Valley, um, they thought they were optimizing for the body's nutritional needs. And let's assume that they knocked it out of the park and did it really, really well. That by drinking nothing more than Soylent, um, your body gets all that it needs nutritionally, and you couldn't do better by doing other things in terms of what you, what you take into your body. Um, well, you know, other things matter in life beyond the body's nutritional needs with respect to food. And so optimizing only for that goal is, in my view, and in the view of almost any ordinary person, a kind of mistake to think that it's the thing that matters most or the thing that matters at all. Um, because while it's fine to have Soylent once in a while, the idea that food is an inefficient way of delivering the body's nutritional needs, which is what they proudly say on their website, reveals the limits of the optimization mindset. But that's even itself just a small example. The one that really kind of set me um, um, you know, on a path to think this was an urgent thing to write about, an urgent thing to think about, an urgent thing to teach about was going to a dinner maybe seven or eight years ago in Silicon Valley, a kind of salon conversation among some big names who, you know, when we assembled ourselves said that the topic of the evening was what would it mean if we could find a plot on earth that was devoted to the maximal progress of science and technology? And there was kind of conversation about how we'd go about doing this, what plot of land. And about, you know, 20 minutes into the conversation, I raised my hand as people were taking this very earnestly and what a great project it would be actually to go about doing this. And I asked, is, is this a democracy we're talking about here, this plot of land devoted to the maximal progress of science and technology? And most people said, absolutely not. Democracy holds back and slows down science and technology. This has to be a beneficent technocracy. So, you know, the, the point of this optimization mindset um, as one of the core drivers is to say, um, optimizing is indeed a superpower for computer scientists and their technical approaches to various computationally specified problems to solve. Whether it's a good thing to have this optimization tool depends upon the objective and technologists should have an equal attention to the worthiness of the objective as to the means of solving or you know, promoting the objective. And then if you think optimization is a lens with which to understand the world and you project your optimization expectations on democracy as such, you fundamentally misunderstood what democracy is for, which is not about, not about optimizing some social product, 
but about refereeing background trade-offs and 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 different preferences and 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 basically division between people who are otherwise equal citizens. Uh, so optimization mindset seen as a worldview becomes a massive problem when it's contained to technical solutions. It's okay, but not even first best. It's mm. just a means of problem solving. I'm actually going to hold off on this question of opti- the, the relationship of optimization with democracy. And I would, <laughs> I would definitely uh, want to bring Jeremy into that aspect. But I, I wonder if, Miran, is that, is, is that something that you've been seeing play out in your uh, vicinity? Well, I think in industry, you see the direct effects of how that optimization mindset translates into products. And so many companies have things like key performance indicators, KPIs, or what are referred to as OKRs, objectives and key results. And basically what it is, it's a means for tracking how a business is doing. But the idea is, you know, as the language specifies, if you're looking at performance indicators or you're looking at objectives, you need to specify what are the things that you think are important. And those become the things that employees try to maximize in the company. Things like the reward structure, bonuses they get, their salaries, promotions are all tied to these indicators. Yeah. As and someone so, has gone through the OKR process, it's very soul <laughs> crushing. <laughs> yeah, so you understand. Before we even go where optimization arguably doesn't even belong like uh, democracy and politics, when you're even talking about the industry where theoretically the, the value of op, uh, optimizational thinking is you know understandable when you're talking about engineering, what you're describing is the process where at some point you have to create proxies to proxies to proxies and show like where you deliver results on these proxies to the proxies and lose track of any kind of value or 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 long-term objective that you might desire. Right. And part of it is, you know, the question of who gets to set these proxies. But if, you know, a simple example of it is, you know, even there, there's the issue itself of the proxy. You can have the objective you really care about. And then there's a proxy that's actually the measurable thing, which may or may not be an accurate description of the thing you care about. But even imagining that you get the objective function correct from your standpoint, there is a question of why does the objective function get chosen by a particular group of people who, you know, have no recourse in some sense to accountability to a broader society. A simple example of that that we talk about in the book is uh, YouTube at Google basically set a particular objective, which was to have people watch a billion hours of video on YouTube. And the question is, you know, that's great from their standpoint in terms of product usage, in terms of revenue, because that means more ads that people are watching. It's not so great from the fact that our kids are sitting there glued to a screen watching videos because the recommendation system is finding the videos that they are most likely to click on next and continue to draw their attention into this environment. And so when you think about that notion of optimization, you know, as Rob mentioned, there's particular things that you get as a result of what you're optimizing, but you're losing other things as a result. And if the things that you're losing are the things that society values more than just the company values, you find where that mismatch is in the the value tension. And that's one of the issues that we want to, you know, raise to the fore is this a systematic driver when your philosophy about how you run a business is just picking these particular metrics, optimizing them and not having any recourse to broader societal outcomes. And it's, yeah. it's one thing, this is Jeremy, when optimization is, is the worldview of the person who's just building the product. But part of what's unfolded with the kind of growth and emergence of Silicon Valley is it's not just a technology for solving 
a computationally tractable and well-defined problem. Optimization is a worldview that is embedded in every aspect of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. So people don't come to Stanford just to learn how to code, no matter how good Maron is at teaching them how to code. They come to Stanford to make change in the world via technology. And that means computer scientists with the optimization mindset are building technology. They are now running companies that build technology. They are now financing companies that build technology through VC. And the optimization worldview is what infects this entire space. And part of what led us to begin to teach and write together was a recognition that the education of the optimizers was deeply impoverished with respect to the value trade-offs that, that people ultimately need to weigh. That is, instead of thinking about problems that have a right and wrong answer, a more efficient set of code, right, a clean way of producing the solution, most of the challenges of technology are not like that. They're also not clearly about legal or not legal. They're about degrees of right and wrong in the sense of weighing competing values. How do we think about the balance that we want to achieve between the efficiency that personalized advertising enables and the privacy that we may want to have, right? How do we achieve a balance between the ability to communicate on the social media platform that is democratized and some of the damage that comes from misinformation or cyberbullying and harassment? An optimization mindset does not lend itself to the refereeing of those values, but the very construction of how those values are refereed has left it in the hands of optimizers to make those choices who increasingly are optimizing only for the bottom lines of the companies at which they work, that they lead, or which they finance. This is something that Vanessa and I get back to on many areas, the way that the optimization mindset infiltrates political thinking. And I think it you can see it top down where a lot of people who go into managerial positions in government and executive positions will have that approach um, like philosophically, like they would, you know, streamline the the system that weighs those different trade-offs and, and enables um, a better consensus building mechanism, but one that is um, implementing a certain path that is considered ideologically by the people in charge as the right solution. But then it also comes from like bottom up in the way that uh, a lot of the conversation around politics happens. And I see that, I think, in many areas of, of, of political contention right now. But for instance, interestingly, the climate change debate, where there is valuable discussion about how to implement smarter, better climate solutions, um, a lot of what's lacking in, in, in the political activism around climate change is an understanding of, th- of, of trade-off thinking rather than this is a problem that needs to be solved and in the most optimal way. And I understand how urgency can, can create a desire for optimization in this case. But, but the result is that many, many, many activities around climate change seem to ignore the political reality that stands in its way and in the process ignoring the trade-offs that need to be tackled on, whether it's loss of job, like a, a change of industry, um, inefficiencies that can be resolved. And, you know, climate activists have 
for years, and so it's changing, thankfully, but if, if for years, for instance, rejected nuclear because it was not as safe, as not as optimal to the solution that they were looking for. Um, and and that's a that's a problem that is not just, I think, technological. I mean, it's not just technologically driven. It's, I think, utopianist driven. It's a philosophy of utopian uh, reality where you don't need to have trade-offs at all. I mean... You know, I, I kind of want to respond to your provocation and sort of concern about the optimization mindset maybe infecting our, our political debate or, or government and to say, I don't quite have that concern. And part of the reason I don't have that concern is, as Rob said earlier, like democracy is not an optimizing technology. Democ- democracy is an amazing technology. One of the things that we say to our students and in the book is this is an extraordinary human invention that solves an age-old problem, which is how to get people who disagree with one another to live together without killing one another. Democracy is the most effective innovation to solve that problem that has ever been invented. But it's not an optimizing technology. In, In the context of political debates, when you see people making arguments about, well, we should invest these resources in something that's going to yield the highest social return or the most efficient way of delivering this outcome, by the very design of our democratic institutions, that argument has to be weighed against all sorts of other arguments because the very structure of our political institutions demands that kind of multi-stakeholder engagement. The private sector does not have that dynamic. There is no check on the optimization mindset uh, in the private sector. I, I will just answer to your provocation, to my provocation, and by agreeing with you completely, that is the, the, the core aspect of democracy where it is by design, uh, it forces compromise and it forces uh, uh, de-radicalization when it works correctly. The problem that I'm referring to is because the optimization mindset, I think, is is so uh, has so infected culture, and especially in a time that is polar, like hyper polarized, you get an expectation of optimization, like let's call it optimization on on both sides, which leads to an anti democratic impulse. And you see that that's a bipartisan desire right now to reduce elements that co- that ex- require the friction in the system, in the democratic system, yes. that are de-optimizing. Um, and, 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 and now they seem to be a flaw. And you even see some um, twisted language calling any kind of um, friction-causing mechanisms in our system as anti-democratic, whereas to right. me, these are exactly the, the, the guardrails of a liberal democracy. Yeah, Adam, I'd just re- kind of maybe offer a, 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 you know, a redescription of what, what you've just said in the following way. Um, any utopianism, a- any aspiration for perfection is inherently anti-politics. It it imagines a world in which we can be done with doing politics, which is about compromise, negotiation, and lots of stakeholders. And so maybe there are domains and and kind of like abstract idealizations in which we can eventually arrive at utopia, but for us fallen human beings, democracy and compromise and negotiation is just not merely realistic, but an incredible approach to solving this age-old problem. Yeah, this this reminds me, we, we also recently spoke with William Duresiewicz. I don't know if I'm pronouncing yeah, his name. Yeah. His, his new book is great. I highly recommend it, at The End of Solitude. And he talks a lot about this idea of utopianism infecting uh, our culture and and this kind of strain of anti-political thinking. Uh, and, and he also writes a lot about 
his students, because he's also a professor, they are kind of, I want to change the world mentality kind of as part of their um, ethos, but not necessarily knowing how to do it. And also kind of eschewing, 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 whatever, eschewing uh, the humanities, which would theoretically give them a great uh, foundation for how to actually change the world, but in, in, instead opting for, and as the universities are increasingly steering them towards, the more STEM, the more science, because that's the way you change the world. Um, so I'm curious from your perspective as professors, like what's the, what are you seeing in the students? What's the culture that and mindset that they're bringing? And has it changed and shifted yeah. can, can, over time? Can I, let me take, this is Rob here. Let me take the first crack at that because uh, again, one of the things that that I notice, and here I want to say something in in praise of um, the the mass migration of students at Stanford and elsewhere to STEM majors or particularly to computer science. And so I'm in my early 50s. And when I graduated from university 30 years ago, um, I had never met someone early on who said, I can't wait to graduate so I can go become a management consultant. And yet, something like half of my graduating class applied to work at McKinsey or, or Bain or Boston Consulting Group or Wall Street as another example of this. Now, those people were motivated by a variety of things, but they weren't chiefly motivated by the idea that this was the best way to change the world for the better. And one of the things which you might think uh, as a kind of unbelievable Kool-Aid that's been drunk by the 19-year-olds here at Stanford is that now they have the same type of potentially monetary, you know, financial um, goals of making a lot of money, and they add to it that this is the best way to change the world. Um, the thing that I think about them, however, is that it, they have something to say that's much better than the person who went to McKinsey or went to work for Goldman Sachs, which is that as, a, as someone who gets software you know, uh, uh, engineering skills. As a 23-year-old, your code rolled out to the product on Monday can actually affect the experience of billions of people if you work at a few big tech companies. Or the venture capitalists come down to campus to recruit you to be a founder at the age of 21. And you can then have a company grow in the space of 18 months to be massive. And so it actually is possible to have outsized effects. This is the scale at which technology works as a young person. And that's a fearsome power. And it's yet another reason why, you know, Jeremy's line was that it's just an impoverished skill set that the 19-year-old gets. These technical skills are incredible and allow for influence at scale, unlike perhaps any other profession. But with that inc incredible social power, ought to come a wider array of skills, social, so, a social scientific or policy orientation, as well as a philosophical or ethical one. So one thing I'd add as someone who, you know, interacts on a daily basis with our technical students is, you know, it, I wouldn't paint them all with the same brush. It's not like everyone's coming and getting a set of optimization skills and then going and figuring out how they're going to make the most money and, you know, destroy the world in the process. There are many students who are very socially minded who actually care about outcomes that they're generating. They think about, you know, what kind of impact they're having in the world. The meeting I had prior to this was with, you know, a student in our, from our department who graduated just a few years ago, who's actually built a company that is basically focused on how do you get more of an ethical economic distribution of money to people who are labeling data, mostly in the global south. 
And, you know, many of the companies that do that now are quite exploitive in the sense that the people who actually get paid to do things like data labeling or data generation get just pennies on the dollar for what these companies are paying for it. And they've created a structure in their company where the money just goes directly to the people labeling the data, right? They're offering, for example, in India, 50 times the minimum wage, right? It's not 150%, it is 5,000% of the minimum wage. And so you do get a lot of students that are socially minded that bring these power tools to bear. I think the question for us is when people get embedded into a particular structure, unless they're aware and take steps to think about how to mitigate some of the impacts of that structure that has incentives that push people in a particular direction, oftentimes related to modernization, most of the time related to profit making, those are the places where students need to be more aware when they go into that structure, what are the roles that they can play, what are the bigger questions they should be asking, how they can make changes. But it's important to keep in mind that there are a bunch of students that actually think about these kind of things that go out into the world and are actually trying to make the world a better place. Sometimes it's a punchline, sometimes it's not. Can you try to pinpoint, um, obviously it's not a moment, but if you can draw out this transition for somebody who enters this world with a, you know, a rich set of values. And the truth is that probably many, if not most of students who go into STEM or for that matter, you know, probably any topic, um, any, any subject come with a set of ideas and values and probably some kind of notion about what would what would make the world a better place um, beyond their own financial well-being. And yet you see that transition or being or getting reappropriated into a different structure of thinking, right? Where you either lose track of what values you're being you're advancing or find a way to justify how your values align with the project that you're working on. And you see, you see that obviously across any industry um, in some way, but I wonder how that works for in your world. If you're saying that so many people do come with an idea of wanting to make a, a, a change, how does that then get retranslated into the reality? If I, if I can jump in on this, I think this is, this is a good moment to, take a step back to the to the initial question, Vanessa, that you asked about the systemic drivers, because there's a danger when we focus on the optimization mindset right, right. And, and sort of the individual psyche that we're falling into the trap that we're actually arguing against, which is that this actually isn't about whether Mark Zuckerberg is a good person or not, or Susan right. Wojcicki or Elon Musk. You know, that these are people who some are lack values, and if we just gave them values, all would be better off. The reason that we take a systemic frame to these problems is to say that that narrative, which is very popular in the media, is a bankrupt narrative for understanding why technology generates so many externalities. And instead, you need to think about the combination of the mental frameworks that the optimizers bring to the design of technology and the building of business. You have to think about the way that incentives are aligned for the builders of technology by venture capital, which privileges and prioritizes scaling technologies as quickly as possible to claim and dominate market share and dealing with whatever might be the unintended consequences or harmful externalities on the back end. And then you layer on top of that, the third systemic driver, which is government 
and its deliberate orientation to craft a regulatory oasis around big technology in the United States. So in contrast to the story about government being a problem and government's always a problem, government paved the path for the information superhighway that we're on. It was intentional. The privatization of the internet that was developed with public dollars and in public hands, the crafting of a regulatory structure, the limited protections that exist for people's private data in, in, in private sector hands, and so on and so forth. These were all deliberate decisions, and it's those systemic drivers. It's not just the mindset of the individual. The mindset of the individual may create a set of blinders and an orientation to privileging one outcome over another and, and, and not position people to know how to referee that, but then that exists in a private sector that is fueled by venture capital to deliver outsized returns in a short time without regard to the consequences, and government's basic absence from this entire equation since 1994, saying that we have picked paving the pathway to the information superhighway, and we are going to you know, step back from attempting to address any of the harms or anticipate any of those harms in the United States, even up until today. So let's let's pause on on regulation because I think we're going to have hopefully a lively debate there on the regulation front. And I want to close with that. But before before we get there, let's let's talk a little bit about the solutions that can come from within tech itself. Oh wait, no, no. Um, a step before that, I do want to hear a little more elaboration on the the scale question and okay. and the, the role of VC okay. in all of this. Okay, elaboration uh, on scale, and then we'll, we'll get into solutions within within tech itself. Well, maybe to take, you know, what was just said and instantiated and it gets into mm-hmm. some of the issues around scale um, is the notion that, you know, a student may go to a company, for example, who is organizing the world's information. Let's say Google is an example because I was there for a bunch of years and they come in, you know, with the intent that they want to help make search better, right? Search going to help get more information to people. And when they're at the company, one of the objectives of the company is basically to generate more money through ads, And so they get involved in the ad system, helping to do that, figuring out ways the data can be used to target ads better. And as Jeremy alluded to, there's a regulatory oasis around these companies. So we don't have federal privacy legislation, for example. So the amount of data that one could actually try to harness to try to show ads in a more targeted way and generate more revenue doesn't have a lot of boundaries around it. And so you have someone who is well-intentioned, but they get put into an environment that says, you will get a raise, you will get a promotion if you can increase this metric. And so that metric becomes essentially the measure by which they look at how well they're doing at the company, right? That's also what the executives at the company use to measure how well they're doing. And so this intention that originally came in, which was let me help people find more information through search, gets rerouted to something else. It's not necessarily nefarious. It's not that there's an evil actor sitting there doing this. It's just that a set of incentives have been created that move people in a particular direction as they align themselves more and more with those incentives, potentially losing sight of the original reasons why they came there. I, I'm just wondering if it's a unique process to to the to the speed of VC as opposed to any any kind of hot market. What VC is unique for is large sums of money that needs to be answered with quick scalability um, early on. Um, but any kind of market that is 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 moving fast and tries to keep up 
especially the more competitive it is, the more true it is, is constantly readjusting the um, either its own, its own practices or, or and to some extent its own values. Um, I've, I've I've seen that in in my industry of journalism, and I and I and I know it from areas like um, medical technologies as well, where you sometimes are are constantly compromising or adjusting your your work because of either shifting market realities or because of it could as, as just as well be different regulatory pressures but but the reality is that that the churn of uh, uh, a market can by itself cause that kind of dilution of your original either purpose product or or set of values is the ethos of VC with the uh, you know move fast break things really that unique in that sense or 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 is it just the fact that the the tech industry like broadly is 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 currently the most vast and fastly churning and striding industry well vc gives you a few things i mean one of the things that's actually tied to a lot of these companies and the notion of having metrics is oftentimes the vcs are the ones who want the metrics right that's how they want to measure who what companies are doing it gives the company a goal to focus on because especially when you're starting a venture it's very easy to lose focus be pulled in a bunch of different directions and so what these metrics really give you is a way to be able to focus what's important for the company where you're going to put your resources how you're going to grow right so very much feeds into that but what the vc ecosystem so does clear, so in, the, in, the, in, the, in that sense you're saying it's different from other industries that that get to have a little more slack or to act a little more in a, in a black box of results rather than have to respond constantly send out the feedback of performance metrics no, so the idea isn't to contrast to another industry but it's just to talk about what are some of the dynamics that lead to how the tech industry sort of has gotten to where it is, is VC also provides a lot of money that tends to be focused into the tech industry. Now, it gets distributed across a lot of different sectors, but there's a lot of money in the tech industry because there's the potential to be able to scale quickly and get returns on that investment. So what also ends up happening is that because you have all these companies in the space, because there is so much capital available, you have a lot of competition and companies that are potentially willing to take an extra step to do something are the ones that tend to pull ahead. And it creates the potential for things like a race to the bottom, right? So if you don't have regulatory guardrails around what people can do, you get folks like if you look at, for example, uh, facial recognition, you get companies like Clearview AI that are willing to go and scrape a bunch of data, not care about people's privacy, and put a product out there that can have some very significant social consequences, even when other people in that space have pulled back on their facial recognition technology. You still get the harms to people, though, because as long as someone's willing to do it, that technology is out there. And so that's what this push in terms of having a lot of money and being able to fund a lot of companies gives you the potential to get the lowest common denominator with respect to people who are actually doing things like paying attention to your data privacy or your civil rights or whatever the case may be. And the due diligence lens in VC is really about, given that this is in effect a sort of sanctioned gambling, right? Trying to figure out how do I get on the deal that is most likely to return excess, you know, profit for my investors because most of the things that I invest in are going to fail. And, and the VC capital fuels scaling. It, it's like hire 10x the number of people, reach 1,000x the number of people as quickly as possible 
consequences we'll deal with later because you need to get that return from one unicorn or, you know, a very small share of your portfolio. So, you know, we see all of these examples like with the FTX collapse or the Theranos collapse and people look at this and they say, well, well, didn't these folks do due diligence before they made these investments? And some people will say in response, well, you just don't understand VC, right? Mm -hmm. Like Theranos and FTX were winning trains and you had to be on the winning train in order to yield the returns for your portfolio. And that's not to say there's no due diligence, but this dynamic that VC is playing in different ways than the other parts of the financial ecosystem just exacerbates some of the challenges that we describe that stem from the optimization mindset. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the only, in my mind, the only really effective way that we'll see change from within the industry in the absence of regulation um, be, because there's a lot of like movements are, that are a bit fuzzier that I don't think that may have some positive implications, but not the kind of necessary impact that we need to fundamentally transform the tech industry. So I'm thinking of things like appointing a tech ethicist, but I, I believe, believe ultimately, fundamentally, you need to change the business models and in order to change the incentive structures, in order for things like privacy, security, um, other values to be incorporated into the product development itself. So can we just talk a little bit about what examples of, of, of different business models, if there are any that have emerged in response? And, and I'm going to challenge you not to say something like DuckDuckGo, because like, obviously, it's the whole purpose of DuckDuckGo is to be your privacy alternative to Google. And I'm more curious about companies where it, privacy isn't necessarily the differentiator, but they've created a business model that will... Uh, reward privacy being built into the product, if that makes sense. Not necessarily privacy, but some sort of value built yeah. into the product. Well, let's start with the just the, the important aspect of the question there, which is the different business models. Um, so to tick off a couple examples that everyone knows and that aren't DuckDuckGo, Wikipedia, Mozilla, um, um, Khan Academy, uh, various forms of trying a nonprofit format in order to diminish the ad-driven business incentives for engagement on the platform in which you either have a fee for service or you have small donations or there's like a big foundation that sits in the background, philanthropic foundation. There's a lot of different ways to, to, to do this. And so you can take advantage of an already existing, in fact, a long existing um, corporate form, the 501c3 nonprofit form, in order to try to escape from some of these other types of typical corporate or financial incentives. And of course, this isn't only a tech thing, like NPR and, and the massive experimentation these days in the media industry with philanthropically funded sort of not-for-profit or patronage model um, um, enterprises common. So more people could, could be interested in that to try those, those out. I w- I'd want to also then point to some genuinely weirder or more eccentric experiments and, you know, the hot topic these days, of course, is generative AI and, and large language models. And if you look at the pioneer in this space, OpenAI, OpenAI, the company, started as a kind of a, a 501c3 nonprofit, philanthropically funded um, by a whole bunch of tech billionaires. Because they were devoted, they said, to AI safety goals um, and wanted to try to develop artificial general intelligence quicker than anyone else with safety as the foremost value. 
And then because they found over the course of time that they needed to spend much more money on compute resources that even their hundreds of millions of dollars of philanthropic capital wouldn't allow them to afford, they switched to a very bizarre capped for-profit model. So if you dig deep into the corporate form of open AI, you'll find this kind of strange, almost unicorn-like form in which they are a for-profit, but because everyone who signed on to the terms of the initial incorporation agreed to a capped for-profit model, there's no conventional returns to investors in the way that most places have. And in this space, there's actually a lot of kind of experimentation in that as well. DeepMind, you know, acquired by Google, famously fought to become a nonprofit, but Google or the parent company Alphabet um, um, overruled that. Um, Anthropic, another one of these new companies, is in a similar kind of social orientation, um, even though it has a for-profit form. So the experimentation with business models is 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 not merely conceptually possible, but possible, but is actually happening. Not to mention the good old-fashioned five hundred one c three nonprofit orientation. But I think Vanessa, you know, we just do need to say that sort of thinking about alternative business models in the absence of the regulatory landscape is, is, is a bit of a false separation, right? So you don't want to talk about DuckDuckGo, but of course DuckDuckGo is at the center of concerns about, uh, you know, anti-competitive behavior in the European antitrust cases, right? So DuckDuckGo may look at the market and we think about, oh, an open free market, some people care more about privacy why isn't there a high-quality search engine that doesn't rely on personalized advertising? And DuckDuckGo says, we want to provide such a thing, but all of the hardware and all of the systems pre-install you know, browsers right, that are also owned by companies right, that are building the hardware or building the operating systems. And so we can't get a foothold in the market. And that's anti-competitive behavior that in the absence of regulation prevents the emergence of alternative business models. So I don't think that one can just think in the abstract, well, why doesn't anyone just choose an alternative business model? Like the, the landscape of the market is always shaped by the existence or non-existence of guardrails. And, and that matters in this space as well. We had the, the CEO of Neva, which is another privacy protecting search engine you know, led by someone who left Google and has built his own platform. And of course, he wants to offer people the best search product possible. That is his goal and orientation. Privacy for him is an additional benefit. He wants a business model that isn't rooted to ad tech. Uh, But if you can't even get on a phone or you can't even get on a computer and you introduce all those transaction costs of you need to change the default, you need to download it, it's very hard to unstick the dominance of the particular search providers. Um, it's, it's interesting, and I think this is, a, I guess, a good transition into the well, difficult question of regulatory solutions because I have a theory that, uh, <laughs> that I would argue uh, gets borne out every day that people don't really care about privacy and that if they had, then we would see competition. And take contrast that with the um, questions about speech that revolve the social media platforms, whether they are allowing hate speech on one hand or whether they are censoring voices on the other. 
people care enough about that. This has entered the political bloodstream. This is um, reaching the Supreme Court with the uh, Section 230 case. We have that. Uh, we have legislatures on, on both sides of the political aisle thinking about competing and sometimes diametrically opposed solutions. But this is clearly, this has entered the democratic level of problem solving. Privacy remains flimsy because I think people just, people realized, you know what? I guess as a 21st century human, I, 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 I just don't care. And you could argue that this has probably been inculcated by the technologies that we use and the habits that we've developed because of them. But I think rolling that back, rolling back the, uh, the practice of, you know, going on TikTok to take a video of yourself brushing your teeth first thing in the morning requires a deeper cultural evolution than anything that can just be resolved by uh, an aggressive uh, regulatory regime like the one they, are, they, they, they hope to implement in Europe. Or arguably, it is being implemented in Europe because European culture cares more about that. I mean, I, I guess I have, I have two responses to that. One is, is to say that there's a lot of variation in how much people care about privacy. And that variation exists across individuals, and it also exists across contexts. And, you know, you have Europe leading seven years ago on the generalized data protection regulation. You have California following suit with the California Consumer Privacy Act, right? So, yes, people do care about privacy, but not everyone cares about it to the same degree. Uh, but you actually have lots of places where regulatory steps are being taken. I guess the other thing just to say is that social science has focused attention on what's called the privacy paradox, which is that people care a lot about privacy, but they don't behave in ways that are consistent with caring a lot about privacy. And you could say, well, maybe that suggests that people don't care about privacy, or you could recognize that the impediments to turning your privacy preferences into privacy-protecting behavior are weighted in the direction of those who are extracting data from us. You have to change your privacy settings affirmatively on every application, on every website that you go to. You have to read through 100 pages of legal documentation to figure out what data is going to be used for. This was not a system designed to help me as a citizen turn my privacy preferences into privacy reality. That's, that's a good point. Um... I'm still, I think, intuitively, and I'll, I'll need to think about it, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'll change my mind on that um, um, based on your point, but I, I'm still intuitively on the side that professing to care about privacy is a long way from the degree to which we really care about it. Sure, we care about it, but I mean, and, and sure, there are hurdles that make it difficult to actively care about it, but it's not impossible, and it is a good gauge uh, for the extent that we care about it. Because when we do care about something for more than that, when we do have values that play into it, we see them actually take shape in our actions. And the way that people migrate between social media platforms express that. The way that platforms like, obviously I'm going back to speech because this is my realm as a journalist, but um, the way that platforms like Substack have been able to change the way that an entire industry approaches its business models shows that when people are actively engaged in, in caring about will, will change their, their, their consumption habits. Whereas with privacy, they say, ah, I'm meeting some difficulty, so I'm not sure I care that much about it. Um, but I will say that it's true, that um, um, we'll, we can only know for sure, obviously, once the hurdles are cleared, and then we can see how people really like, let their preferences be expressed. And, if, and this is an important thing, um, that when we are talking about the, the way you sh- 
framed the question in your book, you frame it as the balancing between tech and uh, democracy and, um, and the question of whether democracy can catch up with tech. And the interesting thing about this is democracy actually contains at least three different dimensions in, in this definition. It contains the idea of the state as the regulatory power that is currently being stressed to, uh, to keep up with tech. It also includes the public interest and the public preference um, side of democracy. And thirdly, it, cre- it includes the liberal value aspect of democracy of be, ha- having certain ideas that are outside the realm of, of, of you know, voting and, and immediate preferences and things that we consider as higher principles that we, that we want to ensure are being protected. So to the extent that privacy is one of those higher liberal values, then it doesn't matter if the consumer is too lazy just to opt out of Google or whatever or use Signal but this is a value that needs to be protected no matter what. And, and, if, and to the extent that the market doesn't offer a solution, the government should jump in. Mm-hmm. Hopefully inherent in your answer will be a, a, a defense of regulation. Because I feel like often in this podcast, we, uh, Adam takes the position of regulation has just been ineffective. To be clear, not in a philosophical way. I'm not a, a, a blind supporter of, of markets. I'm Israeli yeah. and I very much like um, a lot of our regulations across healthcare and many other things. I just think that there, the, the, the problem at scale of regulation at scale in the U.S. is so endemic that I just genuinely don't trust it when it comes to most things, really. Rob, uh, why don't you take this just given Adam's framing about yeah. privacy as a right, effectively. Sure. So. Yeah. So, uh, Adam, I think I think you you described it well in saying that from a regulatory approach or a legal approach, we could decide to enact legislation um, that um, put privacy into the context of it being a right. It could even be an inalienable right. We could make it a constitutional right. We could find different ways within our existing legal architecture for um, trying to backstop this against even the preferences of people to um, disvalue their own privacy, just in the same way we do with other kinds of things. Some people would like to be able to sell their kidneys, but the law doesn't allow it. Um, You can't renounce your, your right to freedom and say that you prefer slavery, all things considered. So rights are a familiar way of handling this very, uh, this very idea. Now, I personally don't think privacy rises to that level of concern. Um, um, but nevertheless, it, it doesn't require rocket science in terms of regulatory experimentation to think about ways of handling this. What I will say is that regulation will be necessary to move beyond the sense in which let's let every individual person, every time they encounter a technological tool or platform, choose from legalese in a terms of service or various buttons that are set in various directions. And it's all consumer choice where the weight of the desire for convenience and the irritation f- feature of legalese being thrown in your face stacks the deck against genuine informed consent. And, and I just want to build on Rob's point, Adam, because the, the perspective that consumer choice gets us out of these problems just ignores the foundational argument of the book that this is about externalities. And while it serves the interests of the companies to say, hey, you don't, you don't like our privacy policies, don't use our platform. You don't like the cyberbullying and hate and misinformation on our social media platform, don't use it. But the reason we use the language externalities is I don't get to opt out of living with the consequences 
of the behavior of these platforms. And that is the most fundamental justification for government intervention. And you can be skeptical of government intervention. You can think that the regulatory state isn't up to the task. But I'll remind you of two things. Number one, the regulatory state built us this pathway to the information superhighway, something that is forgotten by almost everyone who tells the story of the growth of the internet, which was deliberate regulatory choices and deliberate R&D choices to build the internet and then to create a pathway to private sector growth. And it's also the case that if you don't like the capabilities of the regulatory state, that's on you and it's on me and it's on every citizen in this country because since the 1980s, we have eviscerated from government scientific and technical knowledge as a deliberate strategy for reducing the capability of our state institutions. Now, the European Union may not be the most brilliant government policy architecture in the world, but no one would argue that the European apparatus isn't full of people who have thought very seriously and in capable and smart ways about not only privacy protection, but now market competition and increasingly the regulation of things like AI and generative large language models and the like. We don't have that capacity in our government for a reason. And the reason is that we haven't sought to get that capacity in our government and we haven't elevated the quality of our political debate and that's on us. So it's easy to point at government and say, well, they're not capable, but they work for us. And so if we don't think that they're up to the task, we need to get them up to the task. And part of the challenge is that people look at the tech sector and they say, well, I don't really understand. And so I don't have a stake in these debates. And the central argument of our book is that you absolutely have a stake in these debates and you don't need to be able to code large language models to understand what's at play. I think this was a, a brilliant uh, a way to sum it up. And you're right. The point about externalities is actually something that we uh, uh, get back to often on this podcast, that all this issue about tech debate really isn't about individual choice, but it is about the, 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 the cascading effects that it has culturally yeah. and, and to the general polity. Um, I will just say, though, that the, the point about, if I understand correctly, your point about the tech highway being a, res, a result of regulation, it is a result of self-deregulation. Or the lack right? thereof. The lack thereof. Right. It is the result of an intentional unilateral uh, disarmament, right? That's That was the cut both on the financial sector and on the technological sector, um, Section 230 being part of it. Yes, but my point, Adam, is that that was the smart and deliberate choice of policymakers, uh-huh. And so when, when people in Silicon Valley point at government and they, don't, they say, you don't know what in the world you're doing, it was not a passive choice to pave the pathway to the information superhighway. It was a deliberate choice. After having made a set of deliberate choices to make the foundational investments in building the architecture for the internet. And now is the appropriate moment to look back and say, is that the appropriate set of guardrails today, given what we're now experiencing? Uh, that I think my only pessimism is the current reality of our politics being so miserable. Given this reality, I find it just difficult to completely uh, get on the, I, I'm going to trust American Congress to resolve this. Go, Rob, make a defense of democracy in the present. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's no way to claim that we're, uh, you know, sort of operating smoothly here. Uh, but there's all kinds of things to point to um, that show grass shoots of a, a renewed appetite. And indeed, 
the historical context we bring in the book is that this is just a pattern that's repeated itself over and over again with emerging technologies. Once the negative externalities become so powerfully undeniable, democracy slowly rolls into action. But that's what explains this this race between disruption and, and the democratic apparatus. But this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation and the way that, Vanessa, you framed it, which is the techno-optimism or utopianism and then the tech backlash in which all of this was put on the backs of technologists. Either they were ushering us into a new utopia or they were rotting democracy from within. Now we're in a new moment, the early days of what will be a generational challenge of having democratic institutions rise to the challenge, which they historically have done in order to try to, at a minimum, install some basic guardrails and possibly even do more. I actually like it because there is something almost a, a conservative cliche in this that I just realized in what you, you were both saying that that is actually heartening. It's the there, there was a, it, the way that we were talking about the, the harm to democracy has until now has been, um, I, I mean, us in the media has been very passive as in like, oh, you're going to save our democracy or you are. Why are you ruining our democracy as opposed to um, like you said, Jeremy, that's on us. Democracy is us. And like it's a. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps, people. Like, get your democracy in order. Yep. And, and you know, last thing here, to be genuinely hopeful, like hanging out with 19-year-olds who look at people like Greta Thunberg or the Sunrise Movement and see actual living models of people their age doing the sort of thing that John Lewis did 50 years ago during the Civil Rights Movement as a young person in order to kick democratic institutions into motion, that is indeed happening in front of our eyes here. I'd also just add that while it's easy to paint Washington's dysfunction with like a broad brush, um, we have to recognize that um, we're at a moment where increasingly the technologists have come to realize that the future space for innovation is going to be a function in part of addressing the externalities that are now salient for people. And the the period that we've gone through where they were either not visible or outweighed by all of the benefits are being replaced by a period where there's deep, deep concern. And, you know, you see Bill Gates come out for a robot tax. Why is he coming out for a robot tax? Well, maybe in part he cares about the well-being of workers who, who face the consequence of their tasks or their jobs being automated. Uh, but he also recognizes that progress of technology is going to be impeded if that's not successfully dealt with in some serious way. And that requires additional revenues for government, right? And then it requires the invention and investment in education and retraining and upskilling that helps to deal with that or alternative policy models like income transfers in various forms. That's just a recognition that technology doesn't exist absent a political context Innovation exists within a political context. And as Rob said, you know, the technologists who wanted to design an island or, or a space for the maximal advance of technology wanted nothing to do with democracy because they didn't want to have to deal with any of these consequences. But that's not the world in which any of them actually exists. And so we're pivoting from a moment where one could point the finger at Washington and say regulation is bad, right? We don't need any of that. Stay out of our way to a world in which that's increasingly unacceptable. And it's unacceptable to many citizens. It's also unacceptable to people who work in these companies who feel complicit 
in the harms that are playing out. And that portends a new moment in this race between democracy and disruption. In this last Congress, you had five well-informed tech regulation bills that passed the House and that plausibly could have passed the Senate. So we are on the verge, not just of low-hanging fruit, but serious engagement on these issues. And I don't think it is decades in the future. It's years in the future where, at least in the U.S., we finally get a breakthrough. All right. Regulation is coming. You heard it here. <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much for, for being here. This was really such a great conversation. And I know we ran over, but I, I really appreciate it because we were uh, really getting totally, into it. Yes. I appreciate you playing. Yeah, playing really games. interesting. Thanks so much for inviting us. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We're at uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to support us, give us a five stars review on Apple Podcasts or share us with your friends and enemies. We promise to give you more episodes soon. We promise. <laughs> Until next time, stay safe.